0: modern 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 Modern. we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration
1: why don't you make that a
0: double modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 135 of the modern bar cart podcast I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, we have an extremely special treat for you. During my recent West Coast road trip, I was able to grab some time with master distiller Lance Winters of St. George Spirits, based right by the Bay in Alameda, California. Some of our East Coast listeners may be familiar with St. George from their line of excellent gins that have been available on more and more liquor store shelves lately, but you may be surprised to learn, if you're one of those East Coast folks, about their incredible work with fruit eau de vie and whiskey, which is where this brand really has its roots. During this interview with Lance, I refer to St. George as the Forrest Gump of the craft spirit space. They were there at the beginning. In fact, they were the first distillery to open in the U.S. since Prohibition. And there are a lot of key moments in the evolution of the booze industry, whether you're talking about spirits or cocktails, where you'd look around and there was St. George we cover a lot of these incredible stories in this episode and we do a tasting of four key products in the saint george portfolio so you can get a sense of what they're all about from a flavor perspective but first let's do what we always do and give you the chance to make yourself a drink this episode's featured cocktail is the classic tuxedo this cocktail is something i've been playing around with as actually a way to get to know saint george's various gin expressions their terroir locavore and high rye gin in particular all of which are very different and special to make the tuxedo cocktail which is a riff on the martini you'll need two ounces of gin one ounce of fino sherry which is a dry style of sherry and several dashes of our embitterment orange bitters Just like a classic martini, you combine all these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir for about 15 to 20 seconds, and then strain into a chilled cocktail glass and garnish with a citrus twist. Orange is classic, but occasionally, in fact, more than occasionally, I'm partial to a lemon twist. Now, if you're a sherry nerd, which let's be honest, it's a fun thing to be, you might also consider using Manzanilla sherry, in place of a classic Fino. This is an even drier, kind of funky, saltier take on a dry sherry, and it might suit those of you who like to drink your martini in a way that might be considered a little bit dirty. So, now that you're armed with a stiff drink, let's turn our attention back to the interview. Some of the things I cover in this wide-ranging conversation with master distiller Lance Winters include How Lance's childhood fascination with flavors, spices, and seasonings eventually led him into the beer and whiskey world where he met Jörg Rupf, the legendary founder of St. George Spirits. Why flavor is an ideal medium to use when you want to transfer some sort of emotion or experience between completely different people. What it took to grow St. George from a brand that started making Alsatian-inspired fruit brandies in a shipping container to one of the undisputed leaders in the craft spirits world. Then, we taste the following St. George spirits and give you in-depth notes. Their pear brandy, terroir gin, bruto americano aperitivo, and their single malt whiskey, all of which are delicious in their own rights. I can't overstate how large of an impact Lance has had on the craft spirits landscape, and I'm extremely honored to have had this deep, really candid chat with him for you to soak it all in. So please sit back, grab a glass of St. George Spirits, and enjoy this awesome interview and tasting with master distiller, Lance Winters. Lance, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very Um, much for having me. Can you... Introduce yourself in brief, because uh, I know you've got a, you've got a lot of accolades under your belt and a lot of spirits that you're kind of responsible for. But I just want to get the, the general overview of Lance Winters.
1: Super brief, super easy. Lance Winters, that's me, uh, master distiller here at Saint George Spirits. Um, been here for 24 years, and uh, yeah, that's that's as brief as I'm going to go. And I'll go super brief on that, and we can dig in.
0: Nice. Yeah, let's do that. I want to start with. Um, The meals you had when you were growing up, um, I, did your mom enjoy cooking? (laughs)
1: Um, I have to be really careful because, uh, the last time I had a conversation about this, my mom ended up reading about it on the internet. Um, Christmas this year was really rough because, uh, hopefully my mom won't hear this. Uh, I think podcasts are sort of out of her forte (laughs) when it comes to technology. So no, my mom did not enjoy cooking. I, let me let me give the caveat that there were a few dishes that my mom made that we loved to eat. Uh, party chicken, uh, which was a classic 70s style where you just took a bunch of chicken, threw it into a casserole dish with a mixture of apricot preserves, Russian dressing, and uh, Lipton onion soup mix. And, and baked it at like 350 until it was rubbery. Uh, and because it was nice and sweet, we loved it. Um, uh, but no, my mom did not like cooking. And so most of the time didn't have a lot of enjoyable meals. Um, my grandmother liked to cook. Um, and so we had some, some good ones there, but at home, if I wanted to eat something that I really liked, I ended up having to make it myself.
0: Yeah. And how did that influence the way you came to flavor?
1: Um, well, so my, my upbringing was one where, um, the spices that we had in our spice cabinet are still in my mom's spice cabinet. Uh, you, you know the the old package of the savory seasoning that's got the turkey on it, like it's a it's a four color process label. Um, that's there still, man. This thing is a, a relic of the of the late sixties, early seventies. Um, so there wasn't a lot of seasoning used in food, and I fell in love with seasonings with spices as soon as I let me backtrack. I grew up in Fremont. Uh, it's the south part of the Bay, south part of the East Bay. Uh, it's taken me years of therapy to just come out and say, Fremont, I used to say, you know, I don't know, we're, we're just north of San Jose. Um, it wasn't a special place. There wasn't a lot going on. But as soon as I started to experience flavors from other places and spices, I just got really, really excited uh, to the point that um, after going to a couple of really good Chinese restaurants in San Francisco, um, I asked for a walk for my birthday when I was 13, I still have my wok. It is, it is jet black, well-seasoned, beautiful thing. But, uh, it, it taught me to really love interesting combinations of flavors. Uh, it taught me to, and I, I think some of it might've been innate where as soon as I had a flavor like that, I wanted to dissect it. But before you could dissect something like that, that's so, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's a thing that you, it's intangible really, when you don't know what those flavors are coming from. So you have to study all those colors that are in the foods to really be able to pick them apart. Um, and so I would slowly do that as I'm learning about these different seasonings and learning which ones are present in different dishes. Fell in love with that whole idea. Um, for a long time, what I wanted to be was a chef. And I loved cooking food at home. I loved cooking food for friends, for 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 anybody that would sit down and eat the food that I was making. But I realized once I saw inside the kitchen, you have to be batshit crazy to work in a kitchen. Uh, it is high stress, high pressure. Uh, everybody's jumping around like crazy. You're working at somebody else's pace. And I don't like working at somebody else's pace. So um, I never became a chef. I still love to cook, but never became a chef. Um, What I did realize, uh, years later, once, uh, while I was in the Navy, I I joined the Navy, uh, looking for direction in my life, Um, and towards the end of my time in the Navy, when I was back on shore duty, a friend of mine introduced me to making beer. And suddenly it's like, okay, here's a place where you can play with flavors. Here's a place where there are a lot of traditions that have been around for centuries, and they're waiting to be broken. And they're waiting. And when you when you break a tradition, you're starting a new tradition. If if what you've done is valid, and so I started playing around with beers and trying to trying to assert my personality over certain beers, Um, and it was great because I could make something when I had free time, and it could sit somewhere. It could sit in the fridge, and then when friends had come over, pop a beer open and be able to give them something that I made, but it was at my own pace. So that was that was a pretty lovely thing.
0: And it sounds like when you gave them that beer that you made, you kind of got to watch them go through that process that you were explaining earlier, where it's like you got to get lost in something before you can figure it out.
1: So I'm I'm, I'm getting goosebumps because uh, you're you're pulling you're pulling thoughts right out of my head, uh, and I think that I think that there's something to your humanities background that you can credit with this. I'm serious. Um, I, I think that when anything that's been commoditized is done right, when you pour your heart into it, people can pick that up. Um, not to not to get all like water for chocolate on it, but it's like there's emotional resonance, emotional valence to these things that we do, and and hopefully, if I've done it well in a beer, in a spirit, in something like that, people can pick up exactly what I'm trying to do. Um, to me, art is a method of conveying emotion from one human being to another, whether it's through painting, through poetry, through, through interpretive dance. Don't even ask me to do that one. Uh, anything like that, you're taking a feeling that you've got, you're putting it into this medium that has no emotion of its own and no place to hold emotion. You're transferring that emotional content to another human being and hopefully they're picking it up. And if they're not picking it up exactly, the way that that you put it down, there's still value to it because you're you're causing some sort of feelings for them. Uh, so it's it's sort of a it's a magical transference that takes place. Yeah, taking all woo. This is not just California. It's, no, uh, this is real.
0: No, it's not woo at all. Uh, Robert Frost has this famous essay called "The Shape a Poem Makes" or "The Figure a Poem Makes." Okay, and he says that basically, to paraphrase, like a, what happens when when you read a successful poem is that there's this sense of transport like like you have suddenly appeared somewhere that you never knew you had forgotten or never knew that you were about to remember something to that extent and it's that sense of transport the universal by way of the particulars and i guess for the purposes of what we're talking about here the universal by way of the particles right the flavor molecules that, that you're um you're coaxing you're engineering um whether you're talking about fermentation or distillation um so, yeah, I think I think you and I are very much on the same page about, um, you know, the art of basically evoking a reaction through flavor. Um, so let's get back a little bit to the bio. Uh, take folks through the process that took you from a, a home brewer to um, your initial kind of interaction with the founder of St. George.
1: Okay. So... Um as I was getting out of the Navy, I was looking for some way to, to take brewing from my kitchen to, uh, to actually making a living doing it and was able to finagle a job at a small brew pub in Fremont um, and, uh, and then to another one in Hayward where I was able to, to get my hands into the, the brewing process. As I was doing that, um, one of my friends who was, was much more sophisticated than I, brought me a bottle of Lagavulin, and uh, up until then, my experience with whiskey was, this stuff's rough, this stuff is just something that will get you drunk 10 times faster. Um, When I tried that Lagavulin, it was like another world opening up. It was a a Robert Frost moment where suddenly I'm, I'm being told a story on the palate, it's coming apart in different pieces. I'm picking up all kinds of different flavors, but even more so, there's there's emotional content to it. I'm like, this is incredible. I never knew that this is what spirits were about. And I started wanting to learn more and more about whiskey and whiskey production. And one of the first things that I learned was that the first step to making whiskey was brewing a beer. And then you distill it, and then you barrel age it. And that's that's the, the most basic sense of it. Um, and once I realized that, I set about to setting up a still in my garage. Um, Kids, don't try this at home. It is against federal law. I believe that I passed some sort of statute of limitations, so I'm comfortable saying it right now. Uh, But I set up a 25-gallon pot still in my garage and would bring a couple kegs of beer home every week and distill them to see what different profiles I would get from from different beer washes Um, and was loving doing that. Was also terrified anytime somebody knocked on my door that it was the feds so i realized that what i wanted to do was legitimize this so i took a bottle of some of my homemade hooch and uh, i had heard about Jorg group the founder of saint george spirits but um through through various uh, media outlets and i knew that he was in alameda i was in fremont back in those days 25 minute drive and so i hopped in my car with a bottle showed up introduced myself And, uh, my timing was incredibly lucky. Bill Mansart, the gentleman who was running the the stills for York had been doing. So I think probably for over 10 years at that point, um, he was ready to retire. And York said, well, let's, let's first. He tried the whiskey and, uh, his, his pronouncement on it was that it was inoffensive. Um, and I was heartbroken. But, uh, but at the same time I was happy because he said, we'll try you out for a month and see what happens. I went back to the brew pub the next day, I quit my job and I said, if this doesn't work out, I'll figure out some other way to get into distilling. Here I am 25, 24 years later. Um, so, uh, it all worked out. But what was, what was great was that Jorg's way of bringing me in. He said, he said, great. You want to make whiskey? That's fantastic. He Mister Miyagi the whole thing. He's like, great, go distill those cherries. Now go distill those raspberries. Go distill those pears. And what that did was it really taught a love for distillation in all its forms. If you go and focus just on one thing, I think you miss out on a lot of a lot of latitude. I think as as Americans we like to be able to to go in different directions. We like to innovate uh, and uh, diving right into whiskey with only whiskey as as a reference point it's far too self-referential. And so we'd end up making something that's far too much like something somebody else has already made. So teaching me to love distillation first before before we started making whiskey was one of the most brilliant things.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about Jorg? And, um, you know, obviously, with some of these bottles lined up here that, that we're going to taste in a few moments here, like, you know, you're, you're kind of a, a driving force. Um, but, but he seems to be almost this mythic figure uh, and, and even just the way you're describing the mister Miyagiing of yeah. the process. I, I just, I want our listeners, many of whom are on the East coast to, to be able to appreciate what he gave to the craft spirit scene.
1: So um, God, there's so much to say. Uh, first of all, he is like a mythic character uh, in as much as he's um, incredibly intelligent, uh, master of multiple languages, uh, incredible tennis player, great golfer, uh, concert violinist, um, classic classic gentleman, uh, and uh, and was during the during the the first fifteen years that I was here more of a father figure than a boss. I mean, just really kind and generous, incredible human being to the rest of the world. Um, he was the Person who was crazy enough to start a small distillery when, when the laws changed allowing that sort of thing to happen. He was the very first person to start a small distillery in the United States since Prohibition. Um, it was a daunting task because all the distribution models were based on these products that everybody knew and knew really well, and, and very few distributors would want to carry something like a fruit brandy made in, in at that time, uh, Emeryville, California in a 20 foot by 20 foot crate, essentially. But Yorg was driven. These are spirits that even though there's no market for it, or there was no market for it in the United States at the time, there was a reason for it to exist. You take a pear, a raspberry, a cherry, when they're at their peak of ripeness, there's something really beautiful about them. And distilling them and taking those characteristics that you truly love and putting those into a bottle so that you can deliver that to a glass. So somebody else understands what you're feeling when you first grab one of those pieces of fruit, that's a magical thing. And he wanted to be able to do that. Um, and he did, and he was like an indie filmmaker. He was critically acclaimed. Uh, we have letters from the early days of St. George spirits from, um, from people like Julia Child who were saying, this is the some of the best Eau de Vie I've had in my whole life. And I used to love drinking Eau de Vie when I was in France. And and great reviews, things like that. And then there was no actual box office success. Uh, 90% of what we were making back then, we were selling to Germany, Austria, and Switzerland because nobody here in the States knew what to do with this stuff. The only people in the States that were drinking were people who had visited those places, enjoyed it, and wanted to be able to be transported back to their vacations right. in in Europe. Um, but he's in addition to being uh, intelligent, uh, polymath, polyglot, incredible guy. Uh, he's a German and a Taurus, which makes him double stubborn. Uh, and so he just stuck with it. Uh, he was happy just being able to make these products and, and doing his thing. So we stuck with it and uh, was still in business by the time I showed up on the doorstep. Um, the, the story starts to shift at that point. We started laying down barrels of whiskey once we figured out exactly what mash bill we wanted for that whiskey. Um, and then, so during that time, making brandy from Pears, Raspberries, Cherries, doing a little bit of grappa for some wineries uh, and then spending some time doing whiskey there's still seven, eight months of the year where there's nothing going on. We do a little bit of bottling. Uh, I'd stick around to be able to ship stuff out, but as much as possible, I'd go out into the market with uh, with our distributor sales team. And as I went out into the market, I'm seeing this massive proliferation of flavored vodkas. Mm-hmm. By and large, they were all terrible. I would, I'd see them all over the bar. I'd see them all over the the cocktail lists, and I'd be like, "Can I try one of these?" And I try one. I won't name any brand names, but I try one that that purported to be an orange-flavored vodka. The first thing I got in the nose was poorly distilled ethanol. The next thing I got was a chemical approximation of a piece of fruit. On the palate, similar story. And I thought, this is amazing. These things are selling like crazy. People are drinking them like crazy. We're making these fruit brandies that smell and taste just like the fruit on the label. We're making a promise that we're delivering. They're making a promise that they're not. And I came back to York and I said, the only difference here is the language that they're speaking. They're speaking vodka. We're speaking And I said, what if we did a vodka? And so that's when we started thinking about doing a vodka. That's the gestation of Hangar 1, which changed the shape of everything that we did. Uh, It it put us in front of a lot more people. o has changed dramatically since then, but there was no way that we could have done that just on o um, And, uh, and the Hangar 1 just really took off It catapulted us in front of a lot of people.
0: Right. And still right next door.
1: Still. Yeah. Now it's, yeah, now they're next door. So, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we, it's a brand that we sold, I think it's 11 years ago now. Yeah. It's crazy to think that. Um, and, uh, during the time that we were making that, we, uh, I had been making absinthe here, um, I had heard about it, people had talked about it, I'm like, what is this stuff? And the only way, I, I didn't have the wherewithal to be able to get it from Europe, um, I didn't have the money to travel to Europe, and the internet was still too young to actually be able to buy things like that off the internet. So um, I found a recipe and I made it on a lab still, and uh, the first batch was utterly undrinkable. Um, the next batch, I, I figured out exactly what I did wrong and fixed that and was like, okay, this is interesting and spent the next 10 years playing with it. Um, and then when the law changed in 2007, allowing it to be sold legally here in the States, um, I had one that I'd been working on for 10 years. So we launched that. We were the first domestically produced absinthe available in the United States. Um, yeah. And, and jumped around through a lot of different things during that time period.
0: Yeah. You know what it kind of occurs to me as I'm following you through all these inflection points. What I think most people don't realize, and I think what makes this story most compelling for me, is that St. George, you know, from the moment that you're began this business through all of these little landmarks that you're you've just laid out for us, you're kind of the forest gump of a lot of either regular regulatory or trends. Uh, so think of
1: Right place, right time—sort of a situation.
0: Right. Um, I mean, that's a very simple way of putting it, but <laughs> well, I'm 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 Forrest Gump, so I'm a very simple man. So, <laughs> uh, think about just the decision, and and this is probably not what your was thinking when when he chose O to V, but another word for O to V is schnapps. Sure. Uh, and if back in the early '80s, yeah. correct, when this when when this was just getting off the ground. Schnapps was peach schnapps, was or, fuzzy navel. Yeah,
1: yeah. Or, or peppermint schnapps. Or and, peppermint, and, and, right. yeah.
0: and, and that's not what a true schnapps would be if you were to go to, you know, Switzerland or Bavaria or some of these places in Germany where they're actually distilling it. Now, of course, Jorg is from Alsace, you know, kind of in the that that border region between France and Germany. So there's more French influence. Maybe Eau de Vie just seemed like a, you know, just the correct term to use but it also kept you away from all those negative connotations then we fast forward 10 years early 90s this is you know you know early to mid 90s this is when all of a sudden the Cosmo arrives on the scene this is flavored vodka making its imprint on American cocktail culture this is absolute citron you know with cranberry juice that that was the Cosmo and and you're right there. You're saying hmm, flavored vodka. This is kind of what we're doing. We're just doing it way better, and we're doing it with the right intentions behind it. Um, and then you know, up through the, the legalization of absinthe, you'd been working on it for ten years, which is like you know an insane head start on anything. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just it's it's really cool to to hear all these little stories because I think that when people in my DC market go into a good liquor store. And they walk over the gin so, uh, shelves and they see the high rye, the botanivore, and the locovore gin. They say, "Ah, oh, sweet, new gins." That's they don't realize the rest of the iceberg that is underwater that that brought those to the East Coast, so that they can say, "Hey, cool, a new gin."
1: It's a, it's a difficult thing. There's a you know, uh, first of all, as as Americans were. Um, we've got a short attention span most of the time and we don't want to have to learn about something. It's one of the reasons that marketing companies are just the win at, at everything because they find these great comfortable little sound bites to be able to describe things. And it's one of the reasons that I've never done well, uh, like, like going out to a club and trying to meet women because I don't have the short pickup line. It's like, you need to take the time to get to know me. That's just the way it is. And, uh, and so, it's the same way with us as a as a distillery. The hopefully, the more you get to know about us, the deeper you can appreciate what it is we do. But I think that I think that you're spot on with something with the comment about intentionality. Um, it's one of the things that I believe sets Saint George Spirits apart from other distilleries. Um, a lot of so when we started, when when Yorg started the business thirty eight years ago now, um, nobody else was doing it. A little while after he started, Ansley Cole and Hubert Germain robin started Germain Um
0: and uh, great California brandy.
1: It, some, of, it, I, I would even take away the qualifier of California. I think Hubert made some of the best brandies in the world. Sure. They're incredible. Um, you look at uh, at uh, Domaine Trivette uh, and the products that they're making. They okay. came in shortly after after Yorg and Ansley. Um, and then nobody for a while. And it took a long time for other people to, to catch on with it, but I think what ended up happening, a lot, of, a lot of brewers realized that there wasn't a whole lot farther than they could go with their craft, and they realized that, hey, this is something that we can do that's, that's really interesting, a lot of unexplored territory. Um, and suddenly, probably 20 years ago, we started to see a, a big shift, a big acceleration into it. And as soon as that starts to happen, there are more people that see that this is a growth category. And as you see a category growing, you see people whose real intention is purely entrepreneurial. And so there are a lot of people that have jumped in who just wanna make some money. They've seen this being a double-digit growth category for years. It's like, that's that's where we should put our money. we shouldn't open Uh, A gym or roller hockey rink or uh, another copy center because everybody's getting cheap printers with their computers. Let's open a distillery and They don't have the intention of shifting the dialogue about a spirit Um, You know, it's it's one of the things that I talk about when I talk to people about gin Um, So many people are making a gin that is essentially inspired by London dry gin and it's like if every if every vocal performer was inspired by Elvis Presley you'd have a whole record store that's all Elvis impersonators that's boring i don't want that because you know even if you're even if you're a really cool one you know like the, there's a guy i think his name is Elvez and he's a Chicano Elvis impersonator and puts his own spin on it uh, that's cool but it's still it's still totally derivative of Elvis so starting with a new point of view. If you consider the industry to be a conversation, you come into the conversation, you want to see something new. If you walk in and you say something that somebody else has said for a hundred years, what have you added to the conversation? You have added nothing. So we want to make sure that every, every spirit that we put out, we're adding something new to the conversation.
0: Yeah. And that's definitely, at least to me, one of the hallmarks of St. George. Um, and, uh, we're actually going to get to taste and kind of discuss some of the flavors there. in, in just a moment here, um, so I'm with Lance Winters. We're gonna do a quick reset, and then when we come back, we're gonna taste a few of the amazing St. George spirits. Stay tuned. Woo-hoo. All right, and we're back. Uh, Lance, what would you like to start us off here as we explore some of the uh, portfolio items that your distillery uh, creates? Not not to harp on the gump
1: comment, but I'm a simple man, so I like to go in, uh, in a little bit of a chronological order. Okay. Um, I feel like starting with the pear brandy is always such a great way because it says so much about St. George spirits, uh, about how we started about York's philosophy. Um, and one of the things that I didn't mention about him is the fact that he is an incredible stickler for quality. When I first showed up at the distillery, there were, there were literally tanks of things that would never see the light of day because he distilled them. He didn't think they were good enough for release. You release something that's not good enough, that name right there drops down. It's so European. It is. And 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 it is one of the things that has stuck with us. There we make a lot of things and we make a we try out a lot of things. And they're things that other people would probably proudly put their labels on and put out. We can't do that.
0: Yeah, so. and it does go back to what you were saying about Americans having short attention spans. It's not just short attention spans. It's um, it's also the privilege of space. I think where it's like we have this big country, especially here. Uh, I, I just came from LA. Everyone, everyone drives everywhere. Kind of the same in most of California. Um, you can just drive away from a problem if you have it. But I feel like living in Europe it's, it's kind of like living in a small apartment building where you can hear people having sex in the next apartment. So it's like you'd better, if that's the case, you'd better have good sex.
1: Yeah. In Vegas, you pay, you pay extra for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, you're totally right. Um, oh. Pears, nothing else. Uh, this is all Bartlett Pears. These are dry farmed organic Bartlets that come from the Western slopes of the Colorado Rockies. Mm. Uh, we used to get all of our fruit, exclusively from California, but more and more the orchards have been torn out to make room for Pinot, which makes more money per acre than the pears would. Fortunately, these farmers in Colorado are still growing and they've got beautiful organic fruit. Uh, Tends to be smaller because it's dry farmed, which gives us more skin. Skin gives a little bit of spice note.
0: Uh Um, I got a lot of that spice note right out of the bottle. And then as it's opened up, it's just like reminds me of being a kid again when my mom would hand me that plastic bowl. That's all scratched up with, pear all, chunked all, up. all
1: chopped up for you yeah and 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 that's the beauty of it it's again it's transported it takes you to to your scent memory of what pears are all about um, so many stories about this one i uh, i love to drink it um i took my son out to dinner one night at a restaurant in oakland called oliveto uh, had a really lovely dinner and i asked for a glass of pear would at the end of dinner they brought it. I think at the time my son was probably six years old, and he said, "Can I try it?" I said, "No, you, can, you can't. You're too young." I said, "You can dip your finger in it." Dipped his finger in it, tasted it. And I said, "What do you think?" He said, "It's really good." I said, "Well, what is it? What are you tasting?" And he said, "Peaches." I'm like, "Okay, that's that's good." And he said, "Wait a minute, it's pears." I'm like if a six year old, and I, I I know, sorry, there are probably people who are listening to this. You let your six year old try alcohol? I I did. Uh, And uh, if he can pick out the fruit in this, it's, it's an easy thing. It's, it's, it's a win.
0: It's, it's so funny too, because I think today in the market, we tend to privilege complexity Uh, and man, there's, there's something almost stupefying, like not stupefying in the, in the like dumbing sense, but stupefying in the like, it makes you stop and just really pause over it in a way that I don't really pause over other types of distillates sometimes.
1: Yeah. um, If, if I'm understanding the comment about it being a privileged thing um, or putting my own take on that, uh, oftentimes the vocabulary that we use to describe the things that we taste like if we're tasting wine and wine tends to be one of those things where um, you know, I'm picking up tobacco and old shoe leather and things like that. And those are super valid. But you have there's there is a sense of privilege that comes with that, um, and what I wanna what I wanna say to all of your listeners is that the guy who's the 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 head sommelier somewhere who's picking that glass up and telling you about all those things, his palate is no better than yours. He's learned some words along the way trust your own palate your Mm -hmm. palate is the product of millions of years of evolution just like his. and and when you smell it and taste it think about whatever your impressions are there there were times that when jorg and i would taste pear think about how you would like if you were tasting flour how would you describe flour it tastes sort of flowery it's hard to do it but if you dig down a little deeper you can find descriptors and as we're talking about pear brandy we've got different batches that we're getting ready to put together uh, for a bottling, you know, well, this one's a little more steely than the other one. This mm. one's a little warmer. This one's, we even used shinier. This one tastes shinier to mm. me. And, and as long as the person that you're talking to understands where you're coming from on that, then it's, it's an acceptable language. Um, what I get here beyond that spice, beyond what is just truly pear, I get honey. Um, I get, I get some, uh, really nice warm, soft
0: apple as well. Yeah. I get like um, the honey crisp apple. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, and, and I, I love the the influence of the skin too I mean I, to me one of the hallmarks of the Bartlett pear is that skin absolutely um,
1: and, and and to the point where as it's as it's flowing off the palate I get the sense of that almost gritty texture mm-hmm. that you have from the flesh of the fruit uh, um, and it's just it's such a remarkable sensory picture of what that fruit's all about
0: yeah, and can you just give us uh, a few numbers, like the proof? Any any other yeah, relevant so, um, so yeah, label, it, label claims? It's
1: uh, it's forty percent ethanol by volume. Uh, each bottle represents about thirty pounds of fruit. Um, we uh, we crush it, ferment it cold with champagne yeast, uh, and then oh. distill it. And so the only things in there, pears, yeast. And then water to bring it down from distillation strength. Distillation strength is usually average around seventy percent. Sometimes mm-hmm. a little lower. Sometimes a touch higher. Um, this is the the largest still that we use to distill our pears is five hundred liters mm-hmm. or one hundred and thirty gallons. So um, it's a that's a it's a small batch process. Yep, and, 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 and that's they,
0: not bending the meaning of small batch.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely small batch, and the who gives a shit? I mean, small batch, what does it, what does it even mean? It, it's important to us from the perspective that it gives us a certain ratio of copper contact. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we pick up these buzz phrases, uh, that, that marketing companies fling out a small batch. Um, there are a lot of small batch whiskeys that you see that there ain't nothing small batch about them. Um, these are produced in very small batches because of the fact that that copper contact takes away a lot of sulfur components from mm-hmm. the, from the spirit vapor. And, and leaves you with nothing but the impression of fruit. So that's, that's what's really important there. So 40% alcohol, uh, 30 pounds of fruit, 750-milliliter bottle. Yeah. It's all pretty straightforward. Beautiful.
0: Yeah. Um, let's, let's get to this gin. Uh, yes, we're, right now we're, we're getting to two products. The, the kind of middle of this lineup are two products I'm actually fairly familiar with. Great. So I'm excited about this.
1: I'm excited about this as well. Uh, it's it's another interesting thing to talk about. Uh, when you talk about making a fruit brandy, your job as a distiller with a fruit brandy is to not screw it up. You get the best quality fruit that you can get, and then you shepherd it through the processes of fermentation, distillation, so that all the things you love about it show up in the picture. Making a gin is a sheer act of willpower. You are, Willpower and composition. You are taking all these different colors, and you're painting something from it. In the instance here, we're painting a landscape. And the whole idea about this landscape was being able to create something that was evocative of Mount Tam. Um, Again, the story of my son. Uh, When he was 8 years old, he's 21 now, so so 13 years ago, uh, I was picking him up from summer camp. And it had been a long, stressful day. I'm stressed out because I'm late to go pick him up. And I show up out in the woods to go get him, and suddenly I'm just, I'm, I'm loosening up. I'm feeling pretty good about being there, even though I'm, I'm going to catch some shit for being late. Um, and I'm realizing that it's because I'm smelling this place that's like, it's a relaxing place. And I came back thinking, okay, what is it about that place? I want to distill it. I want to distill a photograph of this place so that you, know, you look at a photo of Mount Tam, it's like, Oh great. It's a mountain. It's got some trees, shit like that. Um, you can't sense it. Mm-hmm. I picked this glass up and I'm on a hike. Um, and the reason for that is we've distilled Douglas fir, coastal sage, wild fennel and bay laurel. Those are things that are all in that landscape. We fill in gaps in the landscape. There are things like forest floor mulch, all those decomposing leaves that they smell. Mm-hmm. Those are filled in by Oris root and Angelica root. They've got that, that great earthy, yeah, yeah, great earthy characteristics to both of those. Um, a dusty sunbaked trail, as you're walking up just like hard packed earth and dust is flying up, there's a sweet smell to that dust. Cinnamon does that, it does it really beautifully. So cinnamon is in here as well. Um, we walk roast the coriander. Used to be on the walk that I got for my birthday, but I didn't want to trust the staff with that one too much longer. Uh, so we bought a walk for here. Um, and obviously juniper, uh, orange peel and lemon peel for brightness and
0: that's it in this one It's it's kind of creepy how those main four or five botanicals Uh, the the wild fennel the coastal sage the bay laurel Uh, the the spruce is it the spruce or the Uh, Douglas fir. uh, Douglas fir. Uh, I grew up on a christmas tree farm Okay, uh, you know, it's it's creepy. It's creepy how All of those come through not in succession. You know how sometimes you have that linear flavor experience where you're like, all right, well, first this hits and then this fades into this or whatever. They don't don't come through in succession. But as you think about one, it kind of, you know. You can focus on it. It kind of like wafts up in front of you. You're like, damn, you know. And that is beyond being an act of sheer will, I think. From a, a mathematical and process perspective, it's, it's almost a miracle. Uh, it's got to be. It,
1: um, maybe. Uh, but I, it, there was a lot of trial and error. There was about about six months of really refining this um, from, a, from a, just a pure recipe scale. And then another couple months of refining it once we moved it from the lab stills out to the big stills because it's not a, a direct scaling up exercise. No. <laughs> uh, it sadly never works quite that way. No. Um, but I, it, it was terrifying because in my head I knew exactly what this gin had to smell and taste like. And, and I couldn't stop at anything less than that. Um, but on the plus side, once we got there, it's, it's still one of my favorite things to drink. I, um, uh, and what I love is we'll have people who come into our tasting room who say, oh, no, no, I, I don't like gin. I don't want to try any of the gins. And I'll say, please, if you, I'm going to pour this for you. You smell it. If you don't like the way it smells, I'll drink it for you. And if you like the way it smells, then please try it. Nine times out of 10, somebody who swears they hate gin will walk away loving that. Yeah. And, and... We didn't do that by dumbing gin down and saying, no, we're going to pull juniper out of it. It's got the same amount of juniper that, that our botanical gin has, but we did it by elevating all the other ingredients, by, by making it so that it's not a linear thing, mm-hmm. by making it so that you're, you're looking at a whole forest. So juniper isn't the only thing that you're seeing, so, and, and it makes beautiful cocktails. Um, I love to drink it just in a martini with some oysters. Uh, yep. I believe very firmly that the uh, uh, the bramble, which was invented in the eighties, um, uh, Dick Bradsall, I think, was the uh, the bartender that invented it in London. I think he saw this gin coming somehow and knew that it would be perfect. in it. Uh, there's there's a place where the um, the creme de mure blackberry liqueur intersects with the landscape of this, and the two of them feed off of one another in a really
0: beautiful way. I made a. Um called a, a creme de bois. Uh, I grew up Love the name. Uh, ne- next to that Christmas tree farm. There was this um, patch of wild black raspberries that, that grew right on the side of my driveway, which is this quarter mile long dirt road. Um, and so my mom took a picture and, and sent it to me about a year ago, not a year ago, a year and a half ago and said, Hey, these are ready. I said, all right, you want to do a project, and so we did. We did the, the black raspberry of the cure, and I, I think I've actually had like a little, uh, almost kind of like a super boozy cure. Yeah. With the this and the the remaining bottle of that that I had. That sounds lovely, and it's it's really nice. Um, very cool. Yeah, this is, and I've actually gotten into some some deep trouble, although very much in the confines of my own condo, so so it didn't uh, <laughs> didn't result in any. Uh, any arrests or anything, combining this product and the next one we're going to taste.
1: Hey, I love combining those two, and uh, and I can explain to you why, for me, there's a synergy between the two of them, uh, and maybe it'll be the same for you. I um, Back to your, your uh, growing up at that Christmas tree farm. Um, I grew up at a distillery for the last 24 years, <laughs> and a couple years into it, I started when Christmas was over, chopping up my Christmas tree and, uh, and popping it into the still with high proof and distilling Christmas trees. It's one of the things that led me to understand what I could do with ingredients for the terroir gin. Mm -hmm. Um, but I always did it because for me that smell, that's Christmas. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't meals. It wasn't presents. It was the fact that the house was full of that smell of the Christmas tree. And for us, it was typically noble fur. um, And noble fir has a little bit more citrus to its nose and a little bit more wintergreen. Uh, But, yeah, it was lovely. Um, This is another active construction uh, composition. I wanted to do, initially I wanted to do a fernet. And I failed miserably every time I was trying. And one of the things that I realized was fernet, bronca is pretty much perfect as it is. And there are already a lot of really beautiful Frenets. And I think there are a lot of new ones coming out that are delicious. Um, and I'm not gonna try and force myself to create a Frenet when it's not working. Uh, all the flavors that I really gravitated towards and I wanted to use in f- a Frenet were saying brighter. And so mm-hmm. when I finally decided to go brighter and go in an aperitivo direction, everything started to fall into place. Um, this one is, um, Gentian, which gives the, the base bitterness. That's, that's that big punch of bitterness right up front. Uh, there's, um, uh, uh, gum, which is this mm. really beautiful resin. Uh, and there's, um, uh, balsam fir, which I discovered at, uh, at, a friend's wedding. It was out in uh, Western Maine. Uh, Hey Sam and Jess,
0: uh,
1: mm. <laughs> went to Sam and Jessica's wedding out in uh, center level. And the smell of the balsam fir out there was just really mm-hmm. beautiful. That's one of the places where this crosses over so nicely. Uh, cascara sagrada, which is the bark of the California buckthorn tree, gives the impression of cinnamon and sandalwood without mm-hmm. there being cinnamon or sandalwood
0: there. Right. You, um, see, you actually see that popping up in a lot of candles these days. Yeah, cascara. Yeah, that's like a big buzzword in the candle.
1: It's a, it's it's a lovely aroma. I can totally understand yeah. why. It's something that you see in uh, in incense as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the Bruto, Bruto Americano, yeah. Right, and am I correct in assuming that that means dry?
1: No, uh, I, I, I I can see that. Uh, I was going more for uh, so in Italian, Bruto is ugly. Uh, so ah. Bruto Americano, ugly American. Uh, this was conceived during an election year. Uh, so there you go. Uh, doesn't matter which side you fall on. We were all ugly Americans that year. Um, so. But all, I, I wanted all those flavors to come together to, to give something more than just bitterness. Uh, there's uh, California Seville orange peel, mm-hmm. pink peppercorn, mm-hmm. uh, oolong tea, fresh, uh, fresh ginger, just this whole host of ingredients that, that um, bitterness comes first and then, and then you get that, that bright citrus in the finish. But I wanted to fill up the mid-palate. I felt like yeah. a lot of aperitivi just missed out on that mid-palate contribution. Mm-hmm. So that was, a, that was a big place for, for me to be able to play.
0: What I think in Aperitivo is, is a perfect place for you to, you know, uh, after having created this gin that is hyper-local, in a, at least a manner of speaking, and creating Eau de Vie, that at that point were, you know, probably being sourced all locally. You know, now you're working with some of these ingredients like long tea, um, you know, uh, like ginger that are that are just not local, and that very much kind of mirrors the history of a pair of TV, and, and why the Italians were the first to kind of corner the market on it because they Having had all the, the trade spice rocks. trade. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it, it kind of, you know, th- there's a there's a, a great logic to to the way that you know I, I see this progressing, and I to me, sometimes when I think about innovation, um, you hear especially entrepreneurs saying, "All right, well, we're gonna." Uh, jump off a cliff and build the plane on the way down. Um, there's an anxiety that comes with innovation sometimes, and there's a, you know, kind of like driving through the fog, and you know, all you can see is you know, ten feet in front of you. Uh, but I think if you can find a compelling enough logic to to kind of ground that, it it kind of justifies the process a little bit, I think. And and it's it's really nice to sit here and talk with you because. You know, I'm familiar with the products. I'm familiar with how they work at a, at a flavor level, but it, it's great to hear um, the background for it, and it, it's uh, it's makes it even more compelling to me if that makes any sense. Awesome, yeah, it
1: totally does. Thank yeah. you. Yeah.
0: yeah, I appreciate that. Mm.
1: And it, it's it's probably the first time in in many years anybody's ever said that that we're logical in any way at St. George. So um, I'm I'm going to okay. make Ellie listen to this twice. <laughs> good, good. Ellie, Ellie's my wife, just in case. Mm. Um, so. This is this is fun because we're um, we're now finishing our spirits tasting on what it was that brought me here to St George Spirits. Yes, um, this is our single malt. This is the 19th bottling of our single malt, malt uh, hence the name Lot 19. Um, one of the things that that I thought about when we first started making whiskey was that whiskeys are. Whiskies are made from pale malted barley. It's either peat smoked, not peat smoked, or some combination of the two. That's what single malts were. Um, But as an eau de vie distiller, which I became before I became a whiskey distiller, um, I realized that an eau de vie can be incredibly flavorful and layered and beautiful as it flows from the still, not just from barrel aging. and I thought, how do you do that with a whiskey? Well, you do that by using grains that are sm- uh, that are roasted a little bit more heavily. So this is two row pale. It's crystal malt, which is the the sort of caramelized version of malted barley that you that you would see going into an amber beer. Uh, gives that amber color, gives that great malty sweetness, um, gives some toasted nut character to it as well chocolate malt and black patent malt the things that would go into a porter a stout or a brown mm-hmm. ale um, that give the cocoa coffee and sort of metallic tones um, and then uh, a malt that's called bamberg malt that's smoked in germany uh, in a town called bamberg over uh, over alder and Beechwood. totally mm-hmm. different smoke profile mm-hmm. um, if you go with peat you're going to smell just like somebody's single malt um, i do want to play with doing some peat smoke malts but i wanted to establish a house style before I had something that was that was like that. Um, this whiskey says more about us than it says about whiskey. It says that we like our whiskeys a little on the sweet side. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all about chocolate, roasted hazelnut, maybe some pine nut, um, big smack of cocoa. Um, what you've got in the glass here is average age of about nine years old. The oldest barrel that went into this is 18 years old, the youngest is five years old. Um, it's a combination of used bourbon cask, uh, recupered French oak, some port, some sherry, some apple
0: brandy, and then some uh, uh-huh. California sauternes style. Yeah. So this is a very, uh, I guess, blend blending intensive product, right?
1: It is, and um, it's it's a very very carefully selected number of barrels that go into it, um, and. I can't take any credit for the selection of barrels. I can take some credit for shaping some of our our aging profile, but Dave Smith, who's second in command here, he's head distiller now. Um, He's got an amazing patience and genius for figuring out which barrels should go together. And the lot nineteen of our lot series, people ask, you know, are are you guys striving for consistency in your releases of whiskey? No, we're striving for. What can we do? That's the absolute best from what we got in barrel stock right now, and this is absolute best of everything that he's ever done. So I mean, yeah, yeah, can't say enough in in favor
0: of Dave's abilities. On the nose, I was I was a little confused at first because I, I didn't realize all the different cask finishes that went into this, and I was like, oh, "Is this is this plummy? Is this you know what, what's the fruit on here?" So just hearing the the, the, the California sauterne, the apple brandy, I was like, "All right." I'm not. My, I'm not broken. Like, yeah, this. no, not at all.
1: It's, uh, it and it does require some thought realignment, you know. But that's that's what I want. I, I I don't want to make this super easy. I want it to be enjoyable. But I want you to think, okay, what what's going on here? So, the um, the California Saturn barrels. Um, they give you're you're picking up stone fruit from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's nectarine. But they also give a little bit of rose geranium. And it's just, there's such beautiful
0: barrels. I feel like most people who are familiar with Scotch whiskey as synonymous with single malt would not identify this as a, a single malt, perhaps. Um, do you have any thoughts on the American single malt category?
1: Um, I have a ton of thoughts. It's probably, it's probably one of the places where um, I would butt heads with more people <laughs> than not. Um, There are a lot of people that feel the need to establish regulations for that category. Um, And my question to them is why? What you should really be pushing for is just pure transparency on a label. Mm -hmm. You don't need to have a category. Um, I think that they want to be able to have separate shelf space from other products. And I get that just purely from uh, an economics perspective, a marketing perspective. But if that's driving what you're calling something, you might want to rethink that. Mm-hmm. I believe that there can be uh, a thoughtfully laid out American single malt category. But I think that it's, as a category of things that people are producing, it's still way too far into its infancy for us to be saying this is, this is what it has to be. I mean, I've been making this whiskey for 23 years now. And I think that there still needs to be latitude for experimentation before we lock it into a box and say it has to be this. Mm -hmm. You know, think about the the German beer purity law, the the Reinheitsgebot, uh, was written in the 1600s. And it listed all the things that you can put into beer and can't put into beer. It basically said what beer has to be. Nobody had discovered yeast at that point. If you really wanted to follow the letter of the law, you can't add yeast to this stuff. And and it's like, no, you need to wait until you understand more about this before before you really can find it. It's probably I'm probably not putting it as best as I possibly can. But I think that I think that there needs to be a lot more latitude for for interpretation, for personal interpretation. Otherwise, it's like it's just a geographic designation for something that's already done in Scotland.
0: Right. And I think uh, there's a big trend in other spirits categories like rum for example with geographic designations and denominations of origins, um, and I think right now it, it almost lines up with the kind of like populist conservatism of You know today's zeitgeist to say like let's lock it down. Let's Build the wall yeah. so that you know you somebody on the other side can't call it this uh, but I think that kind of goes against what makes a lot of American spirits especially in the past 30 to 40 years so great is that we didn't have those constraints. And although I do think it's important to recognize that champagne comes from the champagne region of France, if it's not broke on our side of the Atlantic.
1: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll totally give you that. I mean, o- Oscar Mayer really has no claim to the name Bologna, uh, <laughs> it, it is a far cry from what you would get for, at a really, really great deli in Italy. But um, I think to your point, and it comes back to the point uh, a a philosophical interpretation of your point about having lots of space. Mm -hmm. As Americans, we have lots of space and it gives us the wide open prairie, the beauty of it isn't just the fact that here's a lot of land that we can settle. It's like, I can do whatever I want here. This is a blank slate. And that's the way we like to look at a spirits category. It's a blank slate. Okay, there's a there's a material that you have to make it from for it to fit into this category. But that's it. Yeah. That's that's okay, now let me let me play with this. Let me let me screw it up if I need to screw it up, but let me do my thing. That's the part of it that makes it American single mold is the fact that we are I think it's the best part of Americans is that we are sort of renegades mm-hmm. and we do things our own way. Uh it doesn't always work, but when it does, it's an amazing thing. And, and that's the way I want American Single Malt as a category to be treated. Yeah. Uh, just just a, the, the wide open prairie, yeah. a place for all of us to play.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, I'm here with Lance Winters at St. George Spirits. We just tasted through four amazing expressions from their portfolio. Uh, we'll be right back with some quick lightning round questions. And we're back. With Lance Winters here at St. George Spirits. And uh, we're going to hit some lightning round. So, Lance, what's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, uh, what's something you're more recently obsessed with?
1: Okay. Can I, can I list two? Yes. Um, my, my absolute favorite is a margarita. Uh, and and <laughs> it doesn't use anything that I make. But as soon as I sip one, I start to feel it flowing through my veins. I imagine that it's what uh, a heroin addict feels when they shoot up. Uh, it's just this amazing, comforting... Radiance that flows through my body and it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but one that I absolutely adore that usually shows off the prowess of a bartender in an amazing way is a clarified milk punch. Ooh. And what's great about that is that you can use so many different types of spirits to make a really good clarified milk punch. But it's one of these things that it's, it's a bit of, it's a little bit of trickery uh, you look at this thing in a glass that looks innocuous and clear, and as you sip it, the mouthfeel is so radically different from the way it looks. Uh, and the potential for layers and layers of flavor on top of that just blows me away. So it's, uh, it is the cocktail that I most admire.
0: Yeah. I'm a huge Milk Punch, uh, milk punch fan. I'm glad you said that. Um, awesome. Awesome. If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and Why?
1: It would be a Luxardo cherry uh, uh, because uh, it's an aspirational goal. Uh, the Luxardo cherry, I believe, is probably one of the most amazing things. And again, to talk about how how certain industrial processes have taken really, really awful, thing, really wonderful things mm-hmm. and turned them out in an awful way. the The radioactive pink cherries that we often see in cocktails have nothing to do with a true... True cherry, and uh, and the, the 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 cherries that uh, that Luxardo puts out—they're a textural experience. They're a flavor explosion. They're incredible. And uh, I'm not saying that that's what I am. I'm saying that's what I would like to be. So.
0: Yeah, man. Do you ever get just like a gallon can of those things?
1: So uh, funny you should ask. Uh, the, <laughs> there, there's a gentleman in San Francisco named Tony Folio. He's uh, he's an industry veteran. Um, I don't want to even say how many years he's been at it. He doesn't look like it. Uh, he, he, he's young and spry, but he's been at this for a very long time and he is the importer of Luxardo cherries. And I mentioned to him one day, my love for Luxardo cherries. Three days later, there were 50 pounds of Luxardo cherries here at the distillery. It was simultaneously one of the best and worst experiences of my life. I, uh, my blood sugar level spiked off the charts. Uh, I made Luxardo cherry ice cream, uh, which, by the way, do it. Uh, I don't have a recipe. I winged it. That's what I do. Uh, I don't think you can fail. Uh, maybe you can add too much, and it won't freeze because of the sugar content. Right. But, right. Um, but yeah. I, so I had I, there was a box that had six of the big cans, oh. and then and then a metric shitton of the jars. It was it was incredible. Uh, and, and Tony, if you're listening, I, I, I still I, I still you. Thank yeah, you.
0: That's amazing. If uh, you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture.
1: So, I, um, it's going to sound lame. I'd probably, I would probably go and sit and drink Death in the Afternoons with Ernest Hemingway. Uh, and, and as we drank more and more of them, challenge him to do stupid feats of, of physical activity. Uh, and see which one of us broke ourselves first uh, I, I I love a lot of his stories uh, I I'm not I'm not a crazy Hemingway fan like so many people can be but uh, there's certain stories of his I've, I wanted to name a whiskey after one of his stories the short happy life of Francis McComber okay. uh, if you're familiar with it uh, it's it's an amazing story if you're not I go take 20 minutes and read it right. um, but uh, the other side of that is when we first got our label approved for absinthe, uh, I brought a bottle of champagne to the distillery and made everybody death in the afternoon. So there's a special place in my heart for that cocktail. So being able to share one with, with him and uh, and swap war stories with him would
0: be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's a common or traditional cocktail ingredient? And this this actually might be a little tricky for you because you've been in the distilling game for such a long time. But what's a common... traditional ingredient that you've never had and why
1: um, honestly I think you stumped me I don't know that or or maybe I'm stumping you because I don't think that there's anything that I haven't tried um you know from China to Baiju to uh to I mean even as 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 um Lowbrow as Malibu rum. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've tried them all. Um, I haven't tried Amarula is, uh, probably a rare one, uh, African cream liqueur. I haven't tried that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, but, uh, you know. so that's, that's probably the only thing I haven't tried. Uh, Tony, if you import that, please don't send me 50 gallons
0: of Amarula. <laughs> I got, uh, to try a prickly pear spirit or liqueur from Angola, I okay. think, which was interesting. Uh, I, they're doing some stuff in Africa.
1: I, uh, I I've made prickly pear distillate. Yeah. Um, I I, I, I go as weird as I had a um, I had a yak's milk distillate that came from Mongolia. So, I, dude, I've tried
0: it all. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That is fantastic. Um, this has been awesome Lance. Uh, I can't imagine people not being able to find Saint George spirit. Um online. Uh, But could you just take us through the best ways to digitally connect with you? Um, Could you talk a little bit about when people can actually physically come and and take some tours of the distillery here? Yeah, you bet. So
1: uh, so the distillery is open to the public uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday from noon to seven, Sunday noon to five. Uh, for for tours and tastings, um, best to uh, go online to StGeorgeSpirits.com, just S T G E O R G Spirits plural dot com, uh, and uh, and you can go to our tasting room page and uh, and book a reservation. Uh, best to do that if if you've got a group, especially over over two. Um, and then um, you know I'll have to get back to you on that on things like our uh, our Facebook page, our Instagram and our Twitter because um, I stay away from all that that's I'm, uh, yeah I, I'm, I'm I'm not a technophobe but uh, I'm not allowed to address the public most of the time so for, for good reason
0: well there you go I'm well, a loose cannon well I appreciate this rare opportunity then it's uh, a pleasure and, and we will definitely link to all of those things on the show notes right. page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast so if you want to give them a follow or a subscribe that's where you should head and uh If you're not already subscribed to this podcast, then yeah, you should do that too. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Come on. (laughs) Lance, thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you
1: so much. I appreciate it. Hey
0: everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if, they don't download podcasts. They can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarkhart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, Spirits and Flavor Insights, courtesy of Lance Winters and St. George Spirits, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.